Alrighty. Good morning, everybody. It is wonderful to see you. Um, my name is Ross, and um, I, as I walk around the offices at the Austin Stone, it has become something of a game uh, to say my name back to me in the way that people think I say it. And so, wherever I'm walking through the hallways, I get accosted um, with these Ross Gustus, um, and that's what people think I sound like, like some kind of rabid Scottish terrier, um, which is alarming to me. And so, I've been working on a, a client climatizing, contextualizing, um, and so my name is Ross Lester, all right, and so um, that, that's my American name, um, and I'm adopting that as my reality. It's good to be here with you guys today. Matthew 8, verse 18, is where we are going to be. We're in a series called Fathom, which is a sub-series of our larger series, which is a, a walk through the gospel of Matthew, and Fathom is a series in which we examine some of the things that we struggle to fathom, to understand, to believe, to comprehend. And those are the miraculous works of Jesus and the remarkable call, sacrificial call of Jesus that's contained in Matthew 8 and Matthew 9. It's hard for our heads to get around it. It's hard for us to get it into our hearts. And so it's uh, something that we're going to need to fathom by the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's what's happening in the flow of Matthew. Jesus, through the Sermon on the Mount and through ongoing teachings, is declaring the kingdom of God is at hand. And he's teaching with authority. He's saying absolute things that only the Son of God could say. He's making absolute claims that only the Messiah could claim. But to back that up, he is also displaying that the kingdom of God is at hand and available by showing his authority over nature, by showing his authority over sickness, by showing his authority over the demonic spirits that he encounters. And so it's this, this declare and display, this both and in the ministry of Jesus that's so starkly um, captured for us in Matthew 8 and 9. You see, friends, it's important for us to see and recognize and believe in both of those aspects of Jesus' earthly mission. Some of us get stuck in his teachings, but truth be told, we are skeptical of his displays of power. Uh, As we live with the advance of modern medicine and science, when we read some of these stories, we go like, it's probably just the way they interpreted it through an unsophisticated mind. I mean, like real demons, like was this a real thing or were people just having some, some, some issues and, and they just connected their reality to that? No, it's important for us to go, no, he is the miracle working God. And this is what he actually did. When it says he walked on water, he literally did that. When it says he cast out demons, he literally did that. The scripture has a differentiation between demonic oppression and sickness. They can tell the difference between those two things, even in those days. And Jesus does those things. But then some people get obsessed with displays of power. And they forget that his displays of power actually served a purpose. They were pointing towards and connected to his teachings of who he was and what he came to do which was to redeem a people for himself. And so friends, Matthew is a scribe, he's very thoughtful. He's not gonna let us get away with it. The structure of Matthew eight and nine is really important. He's saying, hold these things in tension. And is one of the most important words in theology. He, he is demonstrating his incredible power and he is teaching for us all of the important things that we need to know. He's, he's doing both of those things, declaration, demonstration. And so the structure, if you care, is in Matthew 8 and 9, nine miracles told in three groups with two warnings sandwiched in between 
the groups. It's fascinating to read it just as a literary work. It goes, three miracles, warnings. Three miracles, warnings. Three miracles, right? And so the, there's kind of a status step to it because you're going like, oh, this miraculous stuff is amazing. And he goes, hang on a sec. And then you get back into more. You're like, I love this. Wait a minute, right? And so it's just, it's just keeping us there. It's just saying, no, this actually serves a purpose and so I understand it. So let's look at this. I'm full of anxious excitement this morning. I'm anxious because this text is hard. Whoa. I mean, I've read this text thousands of times. When I read it again this week, I was like, you are kidding. How do I keep drawing these ones on the preaching calendar? Um, and I think I know how, actually, as, as I speak that out. Um, I'm starting to piece this all together as a strategy, um, which is very clever um, on the part of my coworkers. But I am excited. I'm excited because of who Jesus is and the offer he extends to us, even in his difficult calls, is so much better than anything else we could follow. And so I'm praying that he reminds us of that richly this morning um, before we go and break all 10 commandments at ACL. All right, here we go. Verse 18. (laughs) When Jesus saw a large crowd around him, he gave the order to go to the other side of the sea. A scribe approached him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus told him, Foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Lord, another one of his disciples said, first let me go bury my father. Just stop for a sec. You've got your own copy of the the scriptures in front of you. Just look in verse 21 there and underline another one of his disciples. This is someone who is following Jesus. And the category for that is, even though there isn't a full-fledged commitment yet, this is a disciple. Someone who is following Lord, another of his disciples said, first let me go bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. What a truly strange and complex and marvelous text. It seems almost out of character for Jesus and yet it really isn't. He actually says stuff like this often in his teaching and he also says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. He is way more inclusive than we think and give him credit for, and yet he is way more exclusive than we fear and worry about. And what stands out in this text is that the invitation of Jesus, the the call of Jesus is actually a call not just to believe, it is a call to follow. We have made friends in Western evangelicalism, we have made the relationship with Jesus transactional, largely through the way that we have structured salvation responses, which is a topic for another sermon altogether. But in the Gospels, again and again, the invitation of Christ is an invitation to a life of following Jesus in his way, which is a completely different way from the rest of the world. He's saying, walk my path, leave the path that you are currently walking and join a different one. This is the invitation of Christianity. It is not just believe something in a moment and then go on to live like everyone else. No, it is follow Jesus, be a Christian, a a Christ follower, someone who is imitating him, walking in the way that he teaches us to walk. You see how that is different from believe Jesus now in this moment and then do whatever you would like? 
Friends, even the demons believe, we are told. Our call is to follow. It's fascinating to me that the scribe comes to Jesus and says, I I will follow you. Jesus doesn't go, that's not necessary. Don't worry about that. That's ridiculous. You can't follow me. Uh, Just believe in me and then go home and occasionally give to your church and pray for a missionary whose picture you have on your fridge. Um, That's, uh, you're going to have a fridge. It's going to be amazing. Um, uh, That's what I require of my people. Uh, Jesus is going, oh yeah, follow me, but first count the cost. Uh, First count the cost. Uh, When another disciple comes to Jesus, there again is a warning, but the invitation is the same. No, no, first let the dead bury their dead and then come follow me. Walk in the way of Jesus. Be a Christian, a Christ follower. And so friends, at risk of being a stuck record, the invitation of Jesus is a call to follow him with our whole lives, to walk with him, to go where he goes, to trust in his way, to embrace his truth, and to enjoy the life that he has to offer. This brings a tremendous tension about in me, because I think we've substituted other things for the simple pursuit of following Jesus. We've substituted being an evangelical for just being a follower of Jesus Christ. Straight away, even in the way that we categorize things, let's categorize it purely in a set of beliefs, not in a lifelong pursuit of our Lord and Savior, which of course is gonna require belief. But we go straight away to systematizing it in a way so that we can be categorized within some kind of group. And he's gonna say to us this morning, leave the group, follow me. Follow me, walk in my footsteps. And that, friends, Jesus warns us again and again, is a difficult and narrow thing, and not many people do it. And so let's look at some of the reasons why this morning. I just have three for you. It's a very short text, short sermon, brief observations, three observations on why the call to follow Jesus is a difficult thing. Let me just explain my points before I show them to you today. Let me just reveal a little bit of something. I've been teaching my eight-year-old son, Daniel, um, about the powerful tool of alliteration as a textual device, right? Um, And so he's been walking around the house just alliterating everything. Dog, door, it's a dog door. I'm like, ah, and I'm so proud. you know, some dads teach their kids how to throw a ball. Like, you know, uh, we alliterate stuff, right? Uh, um, and read like textual criticism. It's a full-on nerd house. And, I, and I've, I've come to peace with it. It's okay. I do realize as I read all of these points in a row, I may have overextended the usability of the, 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 the textual tool of alliteration. There's a lot of it uh, this morning. But hopefully, if nothing else, it makes it memorable. You ready? The call to follow Jesus is a call to come away from the crowds. And the call to follow Jesus is a call to carefully count the cost. And the call to follow Jesus is a call to commit completely. All of the seas, all in one space, all at one time. First one, the call to follow Jesus is a call to come away from the crowds. Look at verse 18. When Jesus saw a large crowd around him, He put up a tent and began straight away taking donations and opened up a membership class. (laughs) Now he gave the order to go to the other side of the sea. Jesus saw a large crowd around him. He gave the order to go to the other side of the sea. Now this, this stunned me when I read it and I said, this feels familiar. And so I just did some word searches, started going through the gospels. You know how often this happens? Crowd emerges, Jesus is like, we gotta go. 
We've got to go. You'll see this as a repeat theme in the scriptures. A large crowd gathers. It tells us he has compassion on them. He feeds them on occasion. He sees that they're like sheep without a shepherd and he's moved by them. He has empathy for them, but he isn't drawn in by the magnetism of them. And he often wants to draw away from them in order to do the real work of discipleship. He recognizes that the crowd will actually hinder the work of understanding what it means to follow him. And so often when a crowd gathers, he goes, come guys, if you really want to see this, come away with me. Let's move away from this thing. Now I get this, right? I don't like crowds at all. I promised a friend last year, I said, I'm going to be at ACL in 2019. I'm going. If Guns N' Roses can get out of bed and come and perform again, I can go, right? If Axel Rose can get himself together and back in those shorts, I can get to ACL, right? I can do this. And as my finger hovered over the mouse to order tickets, I'm telling you, my wife Sue was like, have you ordered yet? I'm like, mm. she's like, why? I'm like, mm, lines, people, porta potties, mm. and mm, mm. I think I'm preaching downtown that day. I'm going to sit in the parking lot afterwards and listen to it from across the river. I think, I think that's my strategy, right? Because uh, sweaty people, nah, no thanks, all right, uh, uh, not interested. And so when I read this, I go like, yeah, Jesus, I see you. I understand, all right? But this isn't a personality thing. This isn't a convenience thing. Jesus isn't like, guys, they're kind of gross. Let's get out of here. That's, that, that's, that's not it. He is a rabbi building a ministry, growing a following, and so we would think that he would be excited by a large gathering. Any other rabbi would, this would be a sign of success, but he isn't. It is often his impulse to move away from them instead of towards them, and it is in, listen, in the moving away from the crowds that we most often see Jesus calling people to radical commitment. You can go do this as a study through the Gospels. A lot of his toughest calls to radical discipleship comes after a moment of a big crowd. When he gets a few people together afterwards and he goes, here's what it's really going to look like. Uh, to, To follow me with your whole life. The Nigerian scholar Tokumbo Adeyemo points out in his commentary as a, that this is a pattern of Jesus' discipleship. He says it's in his moving from one place to another where so many of his conversations about following him take place. It's like he's showing his would-be followers. You can stay in the crowd and in the safety of anonymous observation and reception, or you can come and follow me away from everything that you know. We are obsessed with crowds. It's one of the ways we measure success. But Jesus knows the crowds, I mean, they're a thing, but they're actually often an obstacle because in them there is a hiddenness, an anonymity, a safety, a security from having to step away into something radical. I love what the pastor, theologian, scholar Eugene Peterson said about crowds. I've got this written on a piece of paper on my desk. He said, classically, there are three ways in which humans try to find transcendence. That is religious meaning, apart from God as revealed through the cross of Jesus. Through the ecstasy of alcohol and drugs, through the ecstasy of recreational sex, or through the ecstasy of crowds. Church leaders frequently warn against the drugs and the sex, but at least in America, almost never against the crowds. Now friends, why is this a problem? Well, I think there are 
internal and external dangers to, uh, from the crowd to the life of the Christian. We can hide in crowds of the world and we can hide in the crowds of the church. And so externally, this is a threat because we can hide in the crowd of the world. We can go with the zeitgeist where we worry that a break from the crowd will expose our following of Jesus. We have more commitment to this cultural moment and its collective groupthink than we do to pursuit of Christ. Can I just tell you, friends, can I just tell you, this is not a prophecy, this is not some sociological wisdom, this is just logic. If you follow Jesus faithfully, you're gonna disagree with most of culture on a lot of things, a lot of things. You're gonna have to step away from the crowd. In Christianity, we're gonna have to give up showing more commitment to our political positions than to the radical message of Jesus Christ. He's gonna call us away from, from, from positions on the right and on the left that don't honor him and aren't part of what a lifelong pursuit with him look like. We're gonna have to step away from them. They're not our primary identity. Your primary identity is not conservative, Christian, evangelical. Your primary identity is not liberal, free-thinking, progressive Christian so that your friends will like you. Your primary identity is a follower of the way of Jesus Christ, forgiven by him. And if in this life, while he was here, he came into continual conflict with the worldview of the day, that ought to continue for us today. Don't hide in the crowd. There's no life there. Secondly, some of us hide internally in the crowd of the church. We think that this is discipleship, the be all and end all of it. This is part of it. But we can get caught up in moments of collective pursuit, but we're never actually prepared to actually break away and follow him personally in our own lives. It's so easy to act in here and to pretend in here. We can be passionate in the crowd when we're very indifferent in private. We can be committed in the crowd. We can be compromised away from it. We can be safe and anonymous in the crowd, never having to publicly confess our faith and live according to it in a hostile world. But we're absolutely silent in the lives of our neighbors and our friends and our colleagues and our coworkers who are lost and desperately needing a true follower of Jesus Christ to open their mouths but we hide, we hide in the crowd. I'm getting attacked by a demonic fly. (laughs) Be gone. I think that's gonna translate really well on the stream. I'm excited about how that plays out, all right. (laughs) At least it wasn't a serious moment. All right, here we go. Jesus calls us away, friends. He calls us into something more. Will we follow him? This is not a statement on church size. That would be rather self-defeating in my current context, right? This is not me saying, so the problem is big church. No, the problem is us thinking that the be all and end all of following Jesus is being part of a crowd. There's, There's just more than this. This is fantastic. I love this. There's just more. Also, this isn't a call to isolationism and individualism. Community is massively important in the Christian life. But listen, we have confused crowd and community. Crowd isn't community. Crowd is crowd. It's its own thing. It's fine. It's not community. And it cannot do the work of genuine community. Jesus is gonna call you away, friends, from the crowd. Will you follow, all right? So the call to follow Jesus is a call to come away from the crowds. Secondly, it's a call to carefully count 
the cost. Verse 19. A scribe approached him, observed the text. They they tell us who this guy is, right? They're giving us a, a clue on his worldview, on what shaped him, on his motivations. A scribe. A scribe approached him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus told him, foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Now this is so interesting because this looks like a guy who's willing to lay down his life. And it seems very strange to us on first read as to why Jesus might have these warnings for him, but there's context in here that is helpful for us. Who are the scribes? The scribes were a group of religious scholars in first century Israel. They were known as the doctors of the law, right? Who had spent their entire lives studying the law, analyzing it, writing it down, transcribing it, memorizing it, debating it. And they end up, if you read the gospels, being a constant source of conflict for Jesus. Why? They're obsessed with the law and with getting it right. And they keep thinking that Jesus and his disciples are breaking the law. And so when Jesus speaks his most powerful woes, his most powerful warnings, who does he speak them to? Scribes and Pharisees, accusing them of being self-righteous and and, and having a fundamental mistreatment of the law, of making the law something that serves them rather than them being something that serves the law. And so friends, this is fascinating. Just imagine the human dynamic of this. This guy who comes to Jesus is a big deal. He's a scholar and he seems to want to follow Jesus. Jesus, can you imagine what this must have been like for the rest of the disciples, right? They're fishermen, tax collectors standing around. The scribe comes up, he's like, Jesus, I want to go with you. And they're like, uh-oh. Do you think Jesus knows we aren't qualified for, for this position? Do you think, I mean, I was fishing when he called me. Do you think, you think he knows? Do you think he knows? Because Jesus goes like, I've got some conditions. And Peter's like, did you know about any of these conditions? I don't know about any of these uh, I, did you fill in a form? Because uh, I hope we haven't lied to the Lord of all creation. All right, okay. How did we get into this crew? Now, I've got these conditions. And so they're standing around going, what will the conditions be? Um, and, and even in the way that he approaches, it's, it's respectful. It seems like he's buying the worldview. He says, teacher, this is a term of respect. He's, he's acknowledging that Jesus has a measure of authority in his handling of the law. All from a guy who is an expert in the law. Why does Jesus treat him? This way. Isn't this guy going all in? Isn't this exactly what you're looking for? Well, maybe not. To the scribe in the context, they were looking for the next big teacher who would begin a school of thought and a related legacy that they could attach themselves to. And so, this is a career opportunity for this dude. This is a chance for him to be an early adopter on the next big religious thing. Young scribes would would find rabbis and then they would just stick with them because they were the cultural icons, the rock stars of first century Jewish life. And so friends, most likely, Matthew doesn't tell us enough, but he he tells us something. He's, He's important to name this guy as a scribe. Most likely what's happening here is the seeming act of radical sacrifice to us is actually still a pursuit of upward mobility on the part of the scribe. He's going, Jesus, can I can I join this train? I'll come along, I'll come along. This looks like it's going somewhere. Uh, I'd love to be part of that. And Jesus warns him. What does he say? He says, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus is saying, let's get two things straight. I'll handle this just very briefly. Two things straight. He says, first of all, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Messiah. Son of man is Jesus' favorite designation for himself in the Gospel of Matthew, but it's the first time he uses it right here in Matthew 8. And it sounds humble. We're like, oh, Jesus the son of man, 
elevating his, you know, profiling his humanity, not going with son of God. But son of man actually is a point to Daniel 7, 13 to 14. And it holds this wonderful tension that he is saying, I am the son of man, I am with you, I'm incarnated, but look who I am. Look at what Daniel 7, 13 to 14 says. It says, I continued watching in the night visions and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. When Jesus says to the scribe, the son of man, he's going like, careful, I'm him. And if you wanna follow, you need to understand, I am given dominion over everything. (laughs) I'm the son of man. And his second warning is, this following will cost you upward mobility. If you follow other teachers, you may well gain comfort and acclaim. If you follow me, well, I'm homeless. So welcome, right? Yeah, free to join our three-year camping trip, um, after which they're gonna murder me. (laughs) Still in? Jesus is putting these incredible truths in front of this guy and saying, count the cost. Following me will cost you everything. Why? I'm God. And I'm not here to promote your upward mobility. I'm here to give you life, real life, but it's gonna look so very different from what you think. Friends, how many of us count the cost of following Jesus Christ? And how many of us are actually trying to live a costless Christianity? It will cost you something for sure, but the gain is everything. Jesus is not a life coach who will help us to promote our personal aspirations. This is why so much of Christian experience is weak and insipid. Mine anyway. I give in to this thinking all the time. Friends, we want Christ, but we don't want a cross. We want spirituality, but we don't want sacrifice. We want the Holy Spirit, but we definitely don't want holy living. We want discipleship, but we want to do it without discipline. We want righteousness, but we definitely don't desire repentance. We want God's kingdom to come so long as it leaves our little kingdom intact. And I am the chief of sinners in this place. I'm in danger of deep hypocrisy this morning. And I know it. I was feeling quite chuffed with myself this morning. That's a good thing. As I was looking over these notes, from the comfort of my suburban home, which is altogether too large for our family, right? It's a Mac mansion, apparently, is the the term they they give them in the suburbs, right? So our homes are too big, and so I'm sitting in this big home. My kids are asleep. I'm reading the scriptures. I'm going like, I'm going to go tell these people, (laughs) about what it means to sacrifice all while I sip on an espresso. I'm very excited about this, right? And I looked out the window and I realized like, my goodness, my faith in Jesus costs me very little. Very little. Am I following him? Or am I just part of the crowd? I turned on a worship album then and a moment of repentance before the Lord and I went deep cut old school, went back to Jeremy Riddle 2009. (laughs) And there was a song and the the word started, Spirit of the living God, come fall afresh on me, come wake me from my sleep, flow through the chasms of my soul, causing me to overflow. Spirit of the living God. I fell before our Lord this morning. I said, Lord, please just awaken me. I want to follow 
Jesus. Whatever the cost. The call to follow Jesus is a call to come away from the crowds. It's a call to carefully count the cost. And lastly, it's a call to commit completely. In verse 21. Lord, another of his disciples said, covenantal name, this guy recognizes the authority of Jesus. First, let me go bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, friends, how many of us read this and we're like, no, Jesus, not cool. Not cool. Uh, you imagining the disciples going like, Guys, that is intense. Uh, you, know how many, you know how many questions we're going to have in Q&A after this session? It, it seems so out of character. It seems contrary to a lot of what we know about his character. We know that when he comes across funeral uh, uh, you know, things that are happening, uh, funeral things, when he comes across funerals and mourning, he's empathetic. He's deeply moved in spirit. We looked at it two weeks ago in John 11. When, when people are weeping for Lazarus, he weeps with them. And Jesus definitely knows that in the law, there is a legal requirement for a son to bury his father. Why does he say this? And so again, some context is helpful. When we read this, we picture ourselves in the text, right? And we picture ourselves as someone whose dad just died and we're waiting a couple of days for his memorial service because people are gonna fly in from all over the country and we're just saying, just give me a couple of days, he'll be in the ground and then I'm good to go. And Jesus is like, nope. And we're like, that's unreasonable. Well, that would be unreasonable and that's not what is happening. I love what the Jewish scholar David Stern uh, said. He said this, don't suppose that this would be Talmud, Talmud is someone who would follow a disciple, someone who would follow a teacher, is traveling around with Yeshua while his father's corpse is waiting at home. The father is not dead yet, right? And so in many ways, actually, his request to bury his father is quite cruel. Um, If he had been, the son would have been at home sitting Shiva. So there would have been legal requirements. If his dad had just died, this guy wouldn't be out in the streets. He'd be at home mourning. What the son wishes is this. The son wishes to go home, to live in comfort with his father till his death, perhaps years hence, collect his inheritance, and then at his leisure, leisure, become a disciple. And Jesus is warning this young man and us, that's not how it works. You don't get to say, yes, but first. Yes, but first, and then I'm all in. It doesn't work to go half in. Delayed obedience is disobedience. If he is who he says he is, then we must reorient the rest of our lives to follow him. Not reorient our following of him to fit the rest of our lives. We cannot try to accommodate him or make him fit with what we already have going on. Friends, we cannot approach Jesus with but first I must mentality. And I do. And I know you do too. I I deal with a a lot of people kind of my age, right, which is middle, and uh, <laughs> it's the broad term for it. Um, and even there, a lot of them are going like, man, w- w- once I retire, woo, mm, me and Jesus. Mm. Once I get these kids out the house, I'm gonna be so worshipful because they're kind of like, it's kind of like having demons in your house. And so once they're gone, it's just going to be full of the spirit, right? And what I've realized from that is it's not just young people kicking the can down the road, right? Everyone's doing it until eventually you kick the bucket instead of the can. That was good. That was not in the notes, but that's... But we do this, friends. 
We just want to delay and delay and delay and delay and delay, thinking at some point we'll go all in to follow Jesus. I've tried to live that way. Sometimes I'm still tempted to try because it seems like the path of joy, but it isn't. Jesus says it's the life of the spiritually dead. It's the life of those orienting everything around the priorities of this world. Let the dead bury the dead. Here's the deal. This text is hard, right? You will fail at living this out. Like today, probably. And I promise there is grace when you do. I mean, Jesus promises in John 6, he won't cast out those who come to him. So don't read this text and go like, oh my goodness, how do I ever know if I'm his? That's not it. But we must, friends, listen, listen. We must come to him on his terms. With lives surrendered, with cost considered, willing to leave the crowds behind us. And here is the certainty, here it is. He goes all in in pursuit of us. It costs him everything. He counts that cost. He weighs it. Then he pays it for the joy set before him. He's scorned by the crowds. It costs him his life. He obeys straight away for us. What should our posture be back towards this magnificent king? We should follow him. Leaving the crowds if necessary. Counting the cost ongoingly and then committing completely and acknowledging that when we haven't committed completely, we repent and we start again and we say, I want to follow my king. It'll be worth it. So here's how I think we can respond today. Instead of us just rushing out of here, What if we sat for a couple of minutes and just considered our walk with Jesus Christ? We'll be all over the map this morning. Some of you aren't walking with him yet. This is the call. This is it, to follow Jesus. We're gonna piece together so much else for you over over the period of the next few years, but sometimes you look like you have to join some weird subculture. No, just follow the king. Start there. That's the call. Some of you can do that this morning. You can become Christians, followers of Jesus. What a thing. You do that by giving up your own life. And saying, I will not follow my own desires anymore. They don't lead anywhere. And you can follow him. Some of you are Christians this morning. You realize it hasn't cost you a thing. You're going with the crowds of life. Repent this morning. Recommit to your king. He's fully committed to you. Ask him for a life of radical, radical sacrifice. Ask him to give that to you, the joy of that. He will. So let's sit for a couple of minutes and consider our walk. What if we left some, some, some repentance space this morning? So I'm gonna leave some questions up on the screen for a couple of minutes for you to consider and for you to rep- uh, repent over and for you to commit through. And then we're gonna sing together. And the questions are quite simply this. What is one area where Jesus is calling you to step out of the anonymity of the crowds? to follow him more faithfully. Ask the Holy Spirit, he'll show you. It's probably somewhere where you're displaying some cowardice right now. Somewhere where he's calling you into deeper community, but you're hiding in the crowd. Somewhere where he's calling you to step away from the zeitgeist, but you're terrified. 
Secondly, what does it currently cost you to follow Jesus? <laughs> what is it costing? Is there anything he's asking you to lay down to follow him more faithfully? And then lastly, what are some of the things that are holding you back from committing fully to following Jesus? You'll find the answer to this one by just starting with phrases like, Jesus, I will follow you fully when, dot, dot, dot. That's the thing. That's the thing. Jesus, first let me, dot, dot, dot. And then I'm yours. That's the thing. So friends, let's just trust the Spirit to speak this morning and to mold our hearts. Here's the thing, listen. He loves you. He loves you. And the Spirit will give you power to live increasingly in this way. It's the only way of life. It's the only way to be a follower of our one true King. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Lord, I pray that we believe it today. I pray that we respond to it today. I pray that we repent if necessary. I pray that we recommit radically to you today. Speak to people today. Win them to you. Cause them to come to faith. Cause them to grow in faith. Empower them to live in faith. Holy Spirit, we trust you. We want to be followers of Jesus Christ. I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Help me. In Jesus' name. Amen. Take a few minutes, consider those questions, and then we'll sing some more.